There's a myth that a lot of people believe. They think that when it comes to our sexuality, God is just a cosmic killjoy. But Pastor Trent Griffith says, not so fast. In Proverbs chapter seven, there is a wonderful, vivid picture of how to avoid sexual sin. Now we're about to dive into it here. And the good news is this, it's not a list of commands. If you've never read the Bible, you just probably think, man, it's just a bunch of lists that says, do not have sex. If you do have sex, don't enjoy sex. That's not what it says. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana, soon to be Gospel City Church. I'm Aaron Paulus. If you're a parent of a little one who is within earshot, and if you haven't already figured it out, we're going to be talking about some more adult kinds of topics today. Although we do promise it will be tasteful and not inappropriate. So use your best judgment as to whether or not they should be listening in. When you look at the Bible and what God says about sex, it doesn't take long to notice something. There are both positive and negative examples in God's Word. It lists right ways of viewing sex and wrong ways. A lot of people assume that the Bible teaches, if it feels good, then for sure you shouldn't do it, right? Well, this week and next week on Resonate, Pastor Trent is going to show us that while God does put some fences around sex, He's not just trying to make our life miserable. In fact, He wants us to enjoy it to the fullest. We just need to play by the rules in order to experience that. We're looking at marriage myth number five in the series, Marriage is Obsolete and Other Modern Marriage Myths. Here's Trent Griffith. Proverbs chapter seven is where I am opening my Bible. I would invite you to open your Bible there as well. This is the fifth and final message in the series, Marriage is Obsolete and Other Modern Marriage Myths. We are trying to replace these myths with the truth. We started out saying the myth, number one, is that marriage is obsolete. We replace that with the truth that marriage is good. It's good for you. It's good for society. It's good for your children. The second week, we looked at myth number two, which was marriage will make me happy. And if you're married, you know that's a myth. And uh, we replaced that with the truth that marriage will make me better. And if marriage makes me better, I've got a better chance of being happy. Then we looked at another myth that a lot of people believe. It's that love will hold my marriage together. It's true for about three weeks. And then when that feeling fades, you're going to need something more than a feeling to sustain your marriage. So we replace that myth with this truth. It's marriage that holds my love together. We got a better definition of love based on 1 Corinthians 13, God's definition of love. And then last week, we looked at myth number four, which was my kids will be fine even if my marriage isn't. But the truth is the health of my marriage greatly impacts the health of my children. I'm modeling marriage for my children and whether or not they want to wear it will depend on how good I make it look in front of them. So that brings us to the fifth and final myth. Here it is. A lot of people believe this one. God wants to keep sex from me. That's not true. The truth is, God wants to keep sex for me. We're going to see it here from this passage of Scripture in Hebrews 13. I'm just going to throw it on the screen. I'll meet you in Proverbs 7 in just a minute. But here's Hebrews 13, 4. It says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
Do you remember when you took like speech 101 in college or public speaking class? How many of you remember that? And you remember being in speech? Remember having to give your speech and being terrified and just hating every moment of that class? Yeah, I never experienced that. I like that class. So anyway, uh, the first thing they teach you in that class is this. You have to know your audience, right? Because you want to develop a, a speech that's going to speak specifically to the specific people in the audience. Do you know how hard that is to do when you're the pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel? Because every Sunday morning, there's all kinds of different people that show up in this room. There's people here for the very first time. I met a couple here for the very first time. I encourage them to come back. Not, didn't try to run them off today, but this was what they got this morning for their very first Sunday. There's others of you here that have been here ever since the very first Sunday and you are plugged in and you're a member and you're all on board and you got a pen out and you're ready to write down anything so you can change your life according to whatever God says to you. That's you, that's great, you're here this morning. There are 12 year olds in this room that the flood of hormones is just now beginning to wash over their brains and giving them interest in these types of things. And there's people here that are single, there's people here that are winning this battle, there's people here that are addicted to sexual immorality, there's men here, there's women here. I would tailor this message differently if I was just talking to the 12 year olds. I would say things differently if I'm just talking to men. I would say things differently if there's just a bunch of skeptics of Jesus in here. And I would tailor it differently if it was just a bunch of hot-hearted, passionate disciples of Jesus. But I get to say it all to everybody. I'm comforted a little bit by what it says in the first line of this verse. Let marriage be held in honor among all. All middle schoolers need to hold marriage honorably. All skeptics of Jesus need to hold marriage honorably. All disciples, all men, all of those of you that spent your week flooded in pornography need to have a high view of marriage. Now, depending on who you are this morning, let me say this. I would not expect you to hold marriage in honor if you do not have a high view of God. Why would I expect you to have a high view of marriage if you don't have a high view of God? If you don't have a high view of God, I would probably not sit down and start talking to you about marriage. I would probably start talking to you about your view of God. And once you get a high view of God, now you're interested in what God has to say about marriage. There's another group of people in here that um, I would expect to have a higher view of marriage. It's those of you who have actually been broken by sexual sin. Those of you that have wrecked your life or somebody has wrecked your life or your relationships or your marriage and here you are coming with the little broken pieces of doing it your way and now you might be a little more interested in doing it God's way to hold marriage in honor. That's our challenge. That's what we've been trying to do in this series is to hold up how honorable marriage is. The second line of this passage says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. You know what that means? Write this down. It's a very revolutionary truth. I'm sure you've never heard this before. Just write this down or memorize it. Here it is. God reserves sex for married people. Is that surprising to anybody? You may have not even read that in the Bible, and you may have not, but you, you probably knew that, right? Sex is reserved for married people. That's why he says 
that in the context of marriage, you're to build these fences and boundaries and guardrails around your sexuality and only practice sex in the context of a covenant love relationship called marriage. And when you cross the boundaries and start playing with sex outside of those guardrails, you defile it, you pollute it, you devalue it. Looking at our culture, you would think that, goodness, our culture just, they think they can't live without sex. It's like the most valuable thing. No, our problem is not that we value sex too much. Our problem is that we value sex too little. If you have never really read the Bible, you would probably think the Bible just on every page probably tells, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, that sex is dirty. That is not the biblical view of sex. As a matter of fact, the most spectacular thing the Bible has to say about sex is this. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife, the physical intimacy between a husband and wife is a reflection of the spiritual intimacy between God and man. And if you have never let your mind be blown away by the spiritual spiritual intimacy between you and God, you probably have a low view of the physical intimacy that God intended to be exclusively practiced by a husband and wife. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. John Piper said it this way. He said, you don't build fences around weeds. Now, some of you do. I've seen some of your yards and some of our yards look like that too. But you don't, that you don't intentionally protect weeds, right? What do you build fences around? You build fences around gardens, right? You don't put your dirty socks and your trash in the safe. You put your jewelry in the safe because it's so valuable. It's so beautiful. And thieves want to steal it. And so we put guardrails and boundaries and protect it. God wants to guard sex as a gift for you. He wants to govern sex so you don't pollute it or defile it. He wants to govern it. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I put my sexuality under his lordship. And so this is one of the greatest battles for holiness in our lives is in relation to our sex lives. The last line says this, and it's a warning. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Does that frighten you? It should. A holy God is watching what you do with the good gift of sex that he's given you. And he will judge you based on whether or not you keep sex within the boundaries God intended. Now listen, my job is not to judge you. My job is not to condemn you. My job is to warn you that God is holy, that sex outside of marriage is off limits. And one day we will all stand before him in judgment. The truth is God has already judged sexual immorality. He's already decided what he thinks about it. His opinion hasn't changed about it as the culture has evolved. God's view of sex has not. God will judge the sexually immoral and you will either be judged guilty or innocent. Now, let me just say this. One of the tools of the devil 
as it relates to sexual sin is to try to get you to think you are the only one who has ever stepped outside of the boundaries that God's put on the sexual relationship. I want to do a counterattack on the devil right now. You see, the power of sexual sin is in the secrecy. And if Satan can keep you playing around with it in secret, then you'll think that I don't have to repent. So let me just ask you this, all right? I've already talked about all the different groups of people. Some of you haven't moved since I've started this. Some of you haven't breathed. And so everybody just take a deep breath. It's like, I don't want to move for fear that someone might think that I am guilty. I can't take notes right now because somebody might think I need this message, okay? That, that, that's what the devil does. He tries to get you to think. It's like, you know, just don't, just pretend like you've never done this. Can I just pull his mask off for a second? Let me ask this question. If you, either in the past or in the present, have any regret whatsoever about stepping outside of God's boundaries on sex, would you just please raise your hand along with mine? My hand is in the air, okay? So about half the people have their hands in the air, the other half are lying. We have all <laughs> stepped out of bounds sexually. If you've ever had a lustful thought, if you've ever looked at pornography, if you've ever taken a second look at something that you were not in a covenant love relationship with in marriage, if you have ever committed fornication, if you have ever committed adultery, if you have ever inappropriately touched someone that you have not entered into covenant love relationship with, whether homosexual or heterosexual, you are sexually immoral. That's a problem because this tells me God's gonna judge the sexually immoral. He's either going to judge me guilty or innocent. And I can be judged innocent if I will embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus, his son, as if he was a sexual sinner. He was not a sexual sinner, but God treated him as if he was a sexual sinner so that all of those who believe in Jesus and embrace his sacrifice and will bring their sexuality under his lordship can be treated as if they had never sinned sexually, even though I am not innocent. I can be treated as if I was innocent because God will judge the sexually immoral. God judged Jesus to be sexually immoral. Jesus took my judgment so I can take his innocence, his purity. So it's the only hope that any of us have for escaping the judgment of God. And so we're gonna dive in here. In Proverbs chapter seven, there is a wonderful, vivid picture of how to avoid sexual sin. I'm going to believe that if you went to the trouble to pack up and come to church today, there is an inkling of desire to live within the boundaries of God's plan for marriage and sexuality. So if you want to avoid it, I want you to see this story. Now we're about to dive into it here. And the good news is this. It's not a list of commands. If you've never read the Bible, you just probably think, man, it's just a bunch of lists that says, do not, have, do not have sex. If you do have sex, don't enjoy sex. That's not what it says. We're gonna see a little narrative here and I wanna set it up for you, okay? I want you to pretend for a few minutes you have not stepped into the auditorium of Harvest Bible Chapel. I want you to pretend that you have gotten dressed up and you've come into a very ornate theater. 
there's red velvet chairs and you sit down in those red velvet chairs and you got a big bucket of popcorn and there's a stage in front of you with a big, big red velvet curtain there and, and you're ready to see a play, a drama. The lights go dim. They eventually go completely out. A man steps to the center of the stage. A spotlight hits him. And you look a little closer and you recognize that guy. That's my dad in a tuxedo. What's he doing there? He grabs the microphone and he looks at you and he says, Proverbs 7, 1, my son, keep my commandments, treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. What's the implication if you don't keep the commandments? You're going to die. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. What's the apple of your eye? It's the very center, the people. Have you ever gotten so close to someone that you could actually see your reflection in their eye? That's the apple of their eye. And God wants you to gaze so intently on his boundaries for sex, that it's right in the center. You never let your eye move off center. He goes on in verse three, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Do you remember when you were in middle school before there were cell phones? And if you got a girl's phone number, where'd you write it? On your hand. So if you never had the pleasure of getting a girl's phone number, I'm so sorry. Um, we'll talk about that later. So you just write that on your hand or maybe you had a homework assignment or some important information or maybe you just doodle in your arm and you couldn't find a piece of paper. Anybody walk home with stuff all over your arm at the end of the day? Yeah. So the reason is because that's important information and you knew if you wrote it on your arm, you couldn't get any further than that far away from it. He said, write it on your arm. Go to the tattoo parlor and get a tattoo of Proverbs 7 on, on your arm. Verse four, say to wisdom, you are my sister. How many of you have a sister? How many of you like your sister? A few hands went down, I see all that. Your sister is supposed to be a close relationship, okay? Somebody that helps you even navigate this area of your life. He says, say to wisdom, you're my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. Just write BFF right there. Insight is my best friend forever. And why is he doing all of this? What has your dad done? He's rented out this ornate theater and he's dressed up and he's invited you here to communicate this message. The first two words he says is my son. 23 times in Proverbs, he uses that two word phrase, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. And by the way, you can flip the gender around any way you want to here. Uh, actually, you just get two options, but it's either, you know, my son, my daughter, my dad, my mother, my sister, my brother. It, the gender, gender's not important here. Um, but what he's trying to say is, I have a responsibility to help you navigate the sexual temptation in your life. What are you trying to say to me? He tells you why he's done all of this in verse five, to keep you from the forbidden woman. The translation that I learned this in was the King James, and it uses an interesting word there. It calls her the strange woman. It's even footnoted in the ESV as a strange woman. You ever met a strange woman? You ever met a strange guy? 
yeah, it's somebody who, their intentions were not good. And he goes on and says, to keep you from the adulteress with her smooth words. Spotlight goes out on your dad. All of a sudden, this curtain opens up and you now see the stage, the set for the drama that's about to be acted out for you. And it looks something like this. It's a house. And at the top of the house, we begin to read in verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. Not lettuce, it's lattice, right? Lattice is that stuff that vines grow on. So he's looking out a top floor window at what's going on down in the street. There's a street going this way. There's a street coming this way. And his house sits at the intersection. He's looking out from the top floor at the intersection. And he sees someone. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. There's seven steps into sexual immorality. Here's the first one, simple curiosity. You see the word simple there? Simple does not mean stupid. I looked it up. I got my big Hebrew lexicon out. I said, I want to impress the people this week to find out what this word means. And so I'm going to give them a really technical Hebrew definition of this word simple. I looked it up. Here's what I found in my lexicon. It says, space in the head. <laughs> That's what it means to be simple. You have a vacuum in your mind. Now listen, we all show up in the world this way. There's space and it is the job of a mom and a dad to fill up the empty space with wisdom. When mom and dad don't do a great job at that, the kid grows up, turns into a teenager and there's space in his head that should have been filled with wisdom. And instead it gets filled with whatever's on Netflix or whatever's on YouTube or whatever he's carrying around in his pocket, or whatever his friends tell him in the locker room. That's what ends up in the space. So it's the job of mom and dad to fill up the space in the head so that he doesn't grow up simple. So he sees a simple man. It's the first step into sexual immorality. Simple curiosity. Now, he hasn't sinned yet. He hasn't become sexually immoral yet. He's just taken a step toward it. Proverbs 22, 3 says... A wise man sees the evil coming and hides himself. He diverts his path. But a simple man goes on and is punished. He gets closer and closer and closer to sin. People come up and say, well, you know, where do you draw the line? How, how far is too far when it comes to like physical intimacy? Wrong question. Better question. How wide can you make the gap? How far away from sin can you stay? That's a better question. And yet simple people don't ask that question. Here's the second step. It is unfiltered access. Look here at verse eight. Passing along the street near her corner. <gasps> Uh-oh, who's her? We have a second person in the drama now. So he takes a left and then he starts heading down the street. Now he doesn't know she's down there. He's just innocently walking down the street. But he takes the path near her 
corner. It goes on in verse eight, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So what do we have here? We got a simple guy in the wrong place near her corner at the wrong time at twilight. I mean, discounting the fact that there's vampires available there. Twilight and in the evening and at night in the darkness. It's a wrong time. Dude, you are out way too late. And why do we think God can't see in the dark? Why do we think that the cover of darkness hides the shame of sin? It doesn't. So got simple guy, wrong place, wrong time with the wrong people. There are some places that you cannot go and expect to remain sexually pure. I'm not talking about places you go with your feet. I'm talking about places you go with your eyes. There are some apps that I cannot have on my phone because I don't have the willpower to resist things that come through those apps. Some of you shouldn't even have a phone. Some of you should have some filters on, all of you should have filters on your internet. All of you should have passwords that you don't know that don't give you access to certain television channels. There are some places in this city you should not go. There are some things you should not drink. There are some people you should not talk to. Some of you need to break up with quote unquote friends so that you can be sexually pure because those friends aren't helping you win this battle. You cannot expect to win the war if you have unfiltered access. Step number three is a rejection of authority. Look at verse 10. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Well, we're going to have to cut in and hear what happens next week. If you can't stand to wait that long, feel free to look it up in Proverbs chapter 7. Pastor Trent Griffith has been helping us see that when God places limits around the most intimate human relationship possible, it's actually for our good. He'll be back with the rest of this message next week right here on Resonate. You know, it strikes me that maybe you can identify with that young man or woman in the story. Maybe you've messed up in this whole area and your conscience is bothering you. Can I encourage you? Tell God all about it. He already knows it anyway, and he stands ready to forgive you. And if you haven't talked to anyone else about it, I think that's really important to do as well. Find a godly person who you can open up to, confess how you've messed up, and then work together on how you can live out a life characterized by repentance. If you're thinking, I can never admit what I've done to someone else, or I don't even know who to talk to, then here's a thought. Why don't you find a godly older man or woman in your church? They might not be as ignorant of these things as you might think. And if you're not in a church, then find one that's not ashamed of teaching the Bible. You know, good churches don't compromise on God's truth. If you'd like to visit my church, where Pastor Trent Griffith is senior pastor, then come on over. I mentioned earlier that we're in the process of changing our church name, but for now, we're still Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger. Our website is harvestgranger.org. That's where you can find more information about where we're located and when we meet. 
Again, the web address is harvestgranger.org. Well, the seductive woman in Proverbs chapter 7 employed the same strategies to capture that foolish young man that pornography uses. Find out how next week on Resonate. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer is that God's Word would resonate in your heart this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a radio and podcast ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. Visit us online at harvestgranger.org.